0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: You know, Julie, recently we were discussing something on here. I think it was something dolphin-related. And we ended up talking a little bit about the uh, ichthyosaurus. Yes. Which, uh, if you remember, I, I, I... I refer to these as fright dolphins because they kind of look like nightmarish dolphin <laughs> they, creatures.
0: very sharp rows of teeth, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. They're you know, long extinct now, but uh, but they're they're of interest because they show up in the fossil record a lot, and
0: um, and they're like bus size, right? Like yeah, school yeah. bus they size.
1: Big, big creatures. And uh, uh, it was after the podcast was over, I started looking up these guys again, and I happened upon a really fascinating news story uh, that came out um, about a year ago, and a number of you probably um, already heard this, but. Um, You had um, a man by the name of Mark McMenamin, who's a paleontologist at Mount uh, Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And he was speaking at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America in Minneapolis. And he was uh, talking specifically about uh, a site uh, in Las Vegas, in uh, Nevada's uh, Berlin Icleosaur State Park, which 200 million years ago wasn't a desert, but was a seafloor. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these really cool uh, fossils. Uh, and particularly, you have uh, ichthyosaurus uh, fossils. And you have this one area, though, that has really uh, perplexed um, scientists for a while, uh, where you have uh, r- remains of nine different 45-foot ichthyosauruses. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 50s, there was this theory that the, that due to their position, we think they might have died in shallow water, and this was actually a tidal right. flat, um, or, or due to accidental um, you know, toxic uh, plankton blooming in the area. But recently, uh, there's been uh, rock evidence to suggest this, these bodies were actually uh, much deeper uh, underwater mm-hmm. than previously thought. So it read uh, McMiniman to come up with a very fascinating theory I mean, not just fascinating, just a mind-blowing theory, and it can, kind of a controversial theory that we're still still waiting to uh, uh, for, for the rest of the scientific community to officially chime in on.
0: Well, these fossils had patterns that resemble suckers on a tentacle, right? Right. And that was the big mystery. And so McMenamin came up with this idea that uh, this kraken-like creature, nearly 100 feet long, or 30 meters long, drowned or broke the neck uh, of these ichthyosaurus and then just, like, took them down to his layer.
1: Yes. And, th- and then there are two additional layers of interest here, okay? Octopi, uh, it, as we'll discuss in this podcast and other cephalopods, octopi especially are, are rather smart creatures. They actually are capable of playing with things. They mm-hmm. get bored, and they take things apart, and they scrunch things up, and they... Uh, they can't keep their hands still. Uh, so they, I mean, their tentacles still, rather. So uh, so the argument here is that uh, this ancient cephalopod giant mm-hmm. that uh, dined on ichthyosaurs uh, in the deep, that, uh, that he or she also would play with his or her food. And then there's this added layer that McMiniman, uh adds to this where he suggests that these creatures might have actually... Uh, that the kraken may have actually formed these dead ichthyosaurs into the shape of a tentacle. That they may have, in playing with their bodies, actually created... Art. The first art, like uh, an artistic interpretation of itself, which is... uh which, which is again controversial theory here, but it's mm-hmm. just it's really mind blowing, and it just felt like we had to to mention it.
0: Well, I love the idea of it because I immediately think the most scientific thing I can think of, which is of course Clash of the Titans. Yeah, <laughs> I think about, uh, you know, the Kraken being released from its underwater original chambers. Original or uh, or the, the remake? The original, yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: yeah. Which, granted, the that creature, while awesome, wasn't like a actual squid. It was no, more like a giant. It had a ogre torso. With, yeah. And
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, it was sort of disappointing when it actually did emerge. Yeah,
1: but it um, does. It brings to mind creatures like that, uh, the, the, the Kraken of myth. It brings to mind Cthulhu, uh, yeah. and, and this intelligent, godlike squid in the darkness, and just the idea that in an age and in a an, in an age with so beyond human experience, and in a place so beyond human experience, that you could have this intellect capable of of taking these grisly remains and Wrenching them into its own shape, you know, it's just that.
0: Well, th- and I think the reason why you can't help but get caught up in this explanation as radical and and
1: it's unlikely I want as out it of a is, new story, really,
0: right? You're, what you're doing is you're you're marrying the brains that we know about cephalopods with brawn mm-hmm. to come up with this idea of them sculpting underwater. Um, but let's talk about the fact that, that there's some criticism, obviously, that that you know about this. Um, Triassic
1: uh, Kraken, yeah.
0: Yes, Triassic Kraken.
1: Well, for starters, uh, McMinniman, he's he's still standing by what he said, and he's working on like official um, uh, official studies uh, regarding this theory. So, so in his defense, he hasn't really had the chance to to really come out full force with his findings and his theory. He's just he's just roughly alluded to it uh, at this conference and said, "I'll get back to you when I have these finished." and everyone waits with bated breath. Right. But the, the, the critics have already pointed out that, well, that's a pretty imaginative explanation for what we're seeing here, and there are other explanations that don't involve uh, intelligent cephalopod artists in the Triassic Age.
0: Yeah, there, w- there was one person who said that the hypothesis was a lot, you know, looking at these etchings, uh, that the hypothesis is a lot like looking at clouds and being able to see what you desire. That, that this um, artifact isn't, or this specimen isn't really that well preserved in the first place. Yeah. So there's that. Um, then there is, of course, the idea that there's no direct evidence of really large cephalopods of that size. Um, and Glenn Storrs, curator of vertebrate paleontology at Cincinnati Museum Center, told Live Science that circumstantial evidence is not enough. Totally agree with that.
1: Yeah, and what Mick Miniman's really going to want to have here is he needs to produce a beak or fossil evidence of the beak. Because uh, right. theoretically, there could have been tra- krakens everywhere back then. They could have just been ruling the roost. But there would have been so few of them, and they're mostly soft material. And as we've discussed before, fossilization is not a guaranteed process. It's uh, more the exception to the rule that we actually see fossil evidence of a creature that once lived.
0: Now, I will play devil's advocate here, and I will mention the book called Kraken by Wendy Williams that, that you lent me, and she does talk about this idea of, um cephalopods as, as very mysterious creatures that were for a long time in the category of cryptozoology. Yes. And she says that even up until, like, I think the 1870s they had a specimen, uh, but it wasn't until the 1890s when, when the specimen was, you know, Widely, widely, then vetted that people began to say this is a real thing. Yeah. So, of course, you have to produce the evidence in order to get there. Um, but I did want to play devil's advocate a bit to say that there's there's still, you know, this idea that a, a giant cephalopod could have existed, a hundred yeah. foot it, long one.
1: It's kind of a wild theory, but wild theories like dreams sometimes come true. Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so, okay, we're going to talk, obviously, a lot about cephalopods today because they are fascinating and because their brains are just a wonder. Um, in fact, um, you know... The brain of the cephalopod has really advanced our understanding of ourselves, right? Our, mm-hmm. our, our own uh, neuroscientists can definitely give a nod to cephalopods um, and even like a, a gerontology, the the study of aging.
1: So the brain of the cephalopod it's it's interesting because um, cephalopods are really not that far removed from, say your your common garden slug. but we don't really look to the garden slug for any kind of staggering intellect. It's a pretty simple creature. And pretty disgusting. Um, that really shouldn't exist at all. Whereas the cephalopods, but they
0: do their jobs. Uh, man. What is their job? They're like turning up the dirt. They're, they're they? making okay. They're helping it to be more nutrient rich.
1: Oh, okay. Well, disclaimer: I, I kind of have a thing against garden slugs. Snails are fine, and then cephalopods are amazing. Uh, <laughs> even though they're 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 all basically buddies and probably email each other on the weekends. And uh, and the and the cephalopods are like, hey, sorry, dude, I don't know why Lamb is such a jerk about climbing on things and sliming up his domain. But uh, like once one got in the sink and it, I almost threw up, it was disgusting. But uh, not a cephalopod. Now we know you're kryptonite. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, please don't mail me slugs, people. But uh, but the brain of a cephalopod is pretty amazing because while uh, com- compared to the human brain, it's not really that impressive and it's not that big. But for a um, um, an invertebrate, mm-hmm. and, and certainly for a, for a mosque, these are amazing brains that they're packing. Uh, also, you have to keep in mind cephalopods. We're generally talking about creatures that live only one to two years, uh, right? And but they're still they're, they still have an incredible uh, brain activity going on.
0: Well, and that one to two years is key in studying aging, right? Because you can see it in real time right there. Um, this is from Science magazine's uh, article tackling brain evolution with all eight arms. Uh, Short of Martians showing up and offering themselves up to science, cephalopods are the only example outside of vertebrates of how to build a complex, clever brain, says neuroscientist Cliff Ragsdale of the University of Chicago in Illinois. For that reason, Ragsdale says, these creatures have much to teach us about brain evolution.
1: So just how impressive is the cephalopod brain?
0: Um, okay, so yeah, some some general modern cephalopod stats here. Um, they do have the most complex brains of any invertebrates. An octopus brain has 50 to 75 lobes and at least as many neurons, about 100 million as a mouse brain. And that is not taking into account uh, the smaller brains in each arm, the still smaller brains called ganglia, mm-hmm. technically, associated with each sucker. Uh, cephalopods like octopus um, or octopi, okay. I think the the... the What did we decide on octopi as the uh, plural? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Cephalopods like octopi, uh, they're unique in that all these ganglias have condensed and they form a centralized brain. And the other thing that's unique is there are two areas of this brain that have developed that are specialized for memory storage. Mm -hmm. And we we see this even in, in Nautilus, but that's jumping ahead a bit. Um, so their brains are larger and more c- condensed, and they also have an area dedicated to learning. Um, but here's the coolest thing. There are more neurons in the tentacles than in the central brains with the ability to make really lightning-fast decisions.
1: Right. They have to, I mean, that's really where you get get down to the, some of the reasoning here, um, specifically with the octopus, uh, going on and moving into the octopus section of the, the podcast here, I guess. Um, the, the theory is that since the octopus has to live, in, oftentimes, in like a tropical coral reef environment, mm-hmm. they're in a very complex environment. These are this is the these are the streets of like 1970s New York. These are <laughs> this is the jungle. This is the you know this is the warriors, mm-hmm. and they have to have a lot of street smarts to survive. So this is kind of like animal street smarts. They have to they have to be dexterous. They have to be masters of disguise. They mm-hmm. have to be stealthy. They have to be killers. They have to be seductive. Well, a little seductive. seductive. Well, there is some seductive. Uh, um, you know, when you get into the the various coloration and hunting schemes, I guess you can you can make that argument but but they have to they have to to really be on their game, and so the arms race is to be this is is not to to simply hide not to simply hunt but to to manage all of these skills mm-hmm. and to do that you need a pretty impressive brain and uh, and pretty impressive uh uh nervous tissue to boot,
0: yeah, let's talk about their tool use we have mentioned this before, but uh, they are master tool users,
1: yes um there, there, there is uh, some fascinating footage you can find online uh, to, of uh, octopi using coconuts for shelter. Basically, a coconut half, turn it up, you got yourself a house, which uh, is not that big of a revel- is it revelation for for us, but for a creature like this, it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal because uh, tool use is uh, is generally a mark of a pretty advanced uh, organism. But here's just uh, essentially a sea slug that is a uh, that is not really a sea slug, but just to, to slander it a bit. This is a, a creature that uh, that is, is akin to a sea slug, and it is uh, it has figured out how to use tools. Other examples, you have the, uh, the blanket octopus, which is immune to the man-of-war jellyfish sting. So what he does, uh, he or she does, is uh, the octopus uh, will glide down to the jellyfish, to this uh, man-of-war, and it will rip off a few tentacles, mm-hmm. and then it has this poisonous whip that it can use to protect itself.
0: Uh, in some of the tentacles too, they float away and, uh, there's some bioluminescence involved as well, right? To yes. distract, to make it say to the prey, well, you know, is, is, am I going this way or am I going that way?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's rather simple tool use. They are not, uh, and, and we have a whole episode on tool use if you really want to get into like the different levels of tool use and what mm-hmm. they mean, uh, uh, in terms of an, uh, a creature's intellect. So they're not doing anything like, uh, like creating true artifacts. They're not building bow and arrows yet. But they are but they are saying, "Hey, that appendage on that creature there is is pretty um, pretty hostile uh, and uh, and it makes some pretty colors. I'm going to rip that off, and I'm going to use it for my own purposes, or that shell. Uh, of that coconut, is actually uh, pretty useful as a shelter for me. I'm going to take it and use it for that.
0: Here, Here's one thing uh, that I think they completely lap us in, in terms of our own pincer grasp. Um, as I had mentioned before, they've got the ganglia mm-hmm. on their tentacles. And uh, so ganglia are controlling every sucker, right? And they have exquisite control over their body in that way. And they can fold the two sides of its sucker together to form a pincer grasp. And so it can do that with every single one. So it has like a 100 pincer grasps to our to our one little wow. thumb and finger.
1: It's pretty pretty impressive. And like I said earlier, Octopi are capable of playing. Like their yeah. their minds are advanced enough that they're constantly learning. They're they they're they're geared to, again, live on the streets, live in the jungle, nineteen seventies New York. So if you take them out of that nineteen seventies New York uh, and you put them in <laughs> suburbia they're going to go a little stir crazy uh-huh. and they're going to start just messing with stuff just to be messing with it and that's exactly what happens in aquarium environments. Yeah. I the stories are just n- numerous. Uh anytime you if you talk to someone who's working in an aquarium or uh, you know look up any accounts online and people say oh yeah we found out that this this octopus was sneaking out, at the, out of the the aquarium at night and eating sharks or we we have to constantly Keep the octopus from taking the entire uh, aquarium apart. Taking apart, uh, you know, suction uh, equipment. Taking apart cameras. Taking apart submarines. Taking
0: apart a, a robot uh, submarine. Yes. In, in one of the tanks, part by part, which I thought was awesome. Um, there was other an, another account um, that uh, one of the keepers had given um, some of the octopus uh, some shrimp, and there was a slightly spoiled one. Mm -hmm. And so the octopus actually stuffed it down the drain while maintaining eye contact with her. Wow. As if to say, really? You're going to try to pass that by me?
1: Yeah. And we've actually studied this, too. It's not all just like uh, sort of uh, backroom accounts. Uh, uh, Read uh, an interview with uh, Jennifer Mather, who's a comparative psychologist at University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. And um, she was part of an experiment where they gave a pair of octopi in an empty tank uh, a floating pill bottle. That's it. Just a floating pill bottle and two bored uh, octopi. And uh, they watched them in a sequence, like in 20 different times, like in a sequence. Uh, They watched them do the, she said, exactly the kind of thing that we would do if we were to, say, bounce a ball off a wall, like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. Just out of boredom, they started just bouncing this uh, pill bottle around and flipping it around the tank.
0: Which, you know, of course, when you're in captivity, that's that's going to happen. They're going to go a bit stir-crazy, so it's important to have things to enrich them
1: with. Yeah, and and certainly they've shown themselves capable of solving mazes. Uh, They like puzzles that generally, if you see an octopus uh, on display in an aquarium, it will not be an empty container. They'll have various things to interact with. They'll Mm -hmm. be given food inside of a a toy of some kind where they have to actually work at it because they're active creatures and they need an active environment.
0: Or sometimes they are asked to uh, predict the World Cup winner.
1: (laughs) Yes, like our friend Paul the octopus, who... um, yeah, born January 26, 2008. Died October 26, 2010. Um, anyone who follows uh, soccer or uh, cephalopod uh, news probably uh, caught this one. But uh, uh, Paul lived at the Sea Life Center in Oberhausen, Germany. And uh, they had this, uh, this gimmick set up where... Um, he was uh, he was able to correctly predict the winner of each of uh, germany's national football team's seven matches in the 2010 fifa world cup as well as the outcome of the final
0: um didn't he have like a the for the outcome of the final wasn't it like a 80 per, 86% accuracy yeah and yeah, and the, the other level that you just said before that was like a six for six. Yeah, and it 100%. was based on
1: like where you would pick food from one or, one of two places. So it wasn't. It's not like the the octopi had a Twitter account or a blog. No. Um, he, he was he was just making a, basically a random choice, and that's the big criticism here. He wasn't actually no. making predictions, and and there was there also been accusations that there was some bias involved on the part of the people caring for the octopus, but uh, the
0: food container had the team's logo on it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but. But it was still an exciting day in uh, in cephalopod media.
0: Hey, I mean, I gave some attention to cephalopods, so yeah. there you go. That was a win.
1: Yeah. All right, well, we mentioned the nautilus earlier. Yes. So let's uh, let's discuss the nautilus. The nautilus is a much older organism, and it's less advanced. It's less bright uh, compared to other cephalopods. And um, it's, it's tiny. Yeah. They're uh, the sole surviving family. Uh, of an ex in, uh, nautiloids in general, which includes like the nautilus and the paper nautilus, which we mentioned in a previous mm-hmm. episode, sole surviving uh, members of the externally shelled uh, uh, cephalopod uh, family that li- that thrived in tropical oceans four hundred and fifty uh, to one hundred and fifty million years ago.
0: yeah, they diverged from the, from their cousins, squid, octopus, and cuttlefish about four hundred million years ago, yeah, which makes them more I should say on a tiny scale in comparison.
1: Yeah, and they're fascinating organisms, just beautiful to, uh, to look at, and the shells are amazing, but they have tiny, tiny brains, and they lack that, uh, dedicated learning region that we see in other cephalopods. Yet what's amazing is that we've, uh, in experiments, we've shown that they do have a form of short-term memory, that we're still trying to really understand how it works, mm-hmm. because they shouldn't really be capable of any kind of higher brain function. Um, they're, again, they're kind of the dull knife in the cephalopod drawer, but, um, but uh, in experiments, they found that if they uh, uh, use flashes of light uh, paired with uh, with uh, food, mm-hmm. they'll uh, actually be able to train the cephalopod to extend its tentacles whenever there's that light. It begins to associate the light with food, and it will retain this memory for about 24 hours, and then it's gone. So it, these guys are kind of like uh, Guy Pierce in uh, Memento. They they, they they only have the uh the short term memory and then it fades.
0: Well what I liked uh is that Or did new- I get that right? No. I haven't seen
1: Memento in a while.
0: Uh well Memento is he's, 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 everything's in sort of reverse, right? Like ah, he's the and got short term, yeah. Um but I really like the way new scientists described it. Uh, it's called "Simple-minded Nautilus Reveals Flash of Memory." That's the the article title. They they say that first of all, the food that was offered with the flash of light was an irresistible mixture of pulverized tilapia heads and water. Nice. So first of all, it was irresistible. It was irresistible. Yeah. Um, and then they said that that when. Um, when they were reacting to it, that their tentacles went crazy. Now, keep in mind, too, that in comparison to the octopus's eight arms, um, that a nautilus has for, for the females, 50 arms, and the males have 90. So mm-hmm. it is quite a display when they are right. waving them around. Um, and that they were panting, too, which mm. was interesting.
1: The panting nautilus.
0: Yes. By Robert Lamb. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to deal with some squid intelligence. Specifically, we're going to talk about the Humboldt squid, also known as Diablos Rojos. All right. We're back. Uh, The Humboldt squid, also known as a jumbo squid, also known, again, as, say it for us.
0: Diablo Rojos.
1: There you go. Much better than me.
0: Yes. Uh, In fact, they were named that by a Mexican fisherman who, who... noted their very aggressive behavior.
1: Yeah, occasionally, um, uh, they're, I mean, there are tales of, uh, of sailors dying at the hands of these guys, right? I mean, they'll, they'll like slit their throats.
0: I don't think they have shanks. <laughs> they don't have shanks.
1: <laughs> I, uh, but at any rate, they, they have, there have been some definite violent encounters with... Uh, with Humboldt squid, and they they have this reputation as being a very aggressive creature. Mm-hmm. Now there have been some fascinating experiments where they they like put they take decoy Humboldt squid down into the deep, and they actually are uh, able to explore. Then they're not just mindlessly aggressive creatures; they're no. I mean, they're still very intelligent animals. But um, under the right circumstances, they can be extremely aggressive. But what's uh more interesting here uh, for us, as we're discussing cephalopod intelligence, is the, the idea that they are able to coordinate with each other when they yeah, hunt. Yeah,
0: yeah. They hunt in schools containing as many as 1,200 other squid. They swim at speeds from 3 to 15 miles an hour, and they can eject themselves from the water and glide through the air to escape
1: predators. Yeah. So, yeah, they have huge brains for their body size, and uh, and it's been suggested that they might actually be as smart as dogs.
0: Oh that's right uh William Gilly who who is featured in the book Kraken by mm-hmm. Wendy Williams actually talks about that and he studies them of course um has a research center but uh yeah he, he as smart as dogs he claims and uh th- he even says that uh or not he doesn't but Wendy Williams does says that Diver Scott Castle once saw one fiddling with the latch of an underwater cage he had just closed so huh. so know. they
1: have that same uh, curious nature that same problem solving ability
0: yeah, um, this is from the National Zoo, form equals function. Uh, these squid actually have two large optic lobes in the squid brain, and that testifies to the importance of vision for locating for the prey for these guys and gals. And, um, you know, they also rely on taste and texture to locate food, and they have highly developed lobes for storing chemical and tactile information. So that's interesting to hear about the diver who was witnessing the the squid trying to open the lock and the idea that, you know, it is it has this ability to plan and it has this ability to store the tactile information and try to figure out this lock.
1: Yeah. There are accounts of them uh, actually stealing car keys and driving as far as Mexico City. Yeah, Yeah. I I read that. Definitely. Supposedly, there's a a whole pack (laughs) of them that have like an apartment there. I I don't know what they do for a living, but
0: Uh, fish, of course. Yeah, Yeah, of
1: course. Um, And it, real quick, we, we mentioned the colossal squid in our, uh, our other episode uh, that we recorded this week on gigantism. But I found it really interesting that the, uh, the, sh- the brain of the colossal squid mm-hmm. is actually donut-shaped, and the esophagus passes straight through the center of it. So it's just a, a different way of thinking about uh, the brain of an organism and how it fits into the, uh, the overall morphology.
0: Well, and I think a lot of times too that we come at it from our human-centric, um, fashion, and we don't necessarily think about cephalopods, um, in this way, but, um, it is interesting to see that their mouths are encircled with arms, mm-hmm. whereas we sort of think about our own flailing tentacles on either side of us. And that does certainly, um, color the way, or actually order the way that their brains are arranged. So, there is this difference of arrangement in the in the brains of cephalopods, obviously, versus humans, and we already talked about ganglion on um, tentacles, um, but then you start to look at the eyes of cephalopods, and this is where there is a major difference. There's a lot of similarity, right? Cephalopods have camera eye, like eyes, like ours, with a lens that projects images onto the retina. The difference between humans and cephalopods, or vertebrates and cephalopods, in this case, uh, is that our many arm friends don't have blind spots, like we do. Do. Because when we look at an image, there's a blind spot in the middle, and that is owing to the fiber optic nerve, which is going in front of the retina as opposed to behind the retina, like a cephalopod. And this is actually an upgrade. This is, oh, a, wow. you know, this is an advantage. This is something that we don't have. Um, and I also wanted to to mention that another difference is that cephalopods have horizontal pupils. So because the eyes can rotate um, thanks to a balancing organ that they have called a, st- a statocyst, they can always keep their pupils horizontal. And it doesn't matter what uh, position their body is. It's always horizontal. Well, so
1: they would just have fantastic visual coverage of the uh- the world around them.
0: Yeah, their brain can interpret visual information no matter what their position is. Uh, they don't have to account for the position of the eye like we do. And if you think about it, if we turn around quickly, uh, you know, we have, we are very disoriented and we have to sit there and figure out our location in space before we can begin to take in data in a way that's meaningful to us. But not these guys. They can, I mean, this is an ama- amazing piece of machinery for them. Um, they can also see polarized light and this allows them to communicate by creating changing patterns on their skin. And, uh, and this, I thought, was fascinating. Um, the reason for this, that they can see the polarized light, is because the cephal- cephalopod eyes started out as light-sensitive skin cells hmm. that folded inwards to form the structure that they have now, rather than as an extension of the brain as, as we have.
1: Wow. So that's, that's again,
0: another difference between the way ways that their brains and eyes work.
1: Huh? So while we've, like, both species, or not just species, but both... Uh, vertebrates and, uh, and squid, they have reached sort of similar conclusions with uh, with their eyes, but uh, from different starting points.
0: So. Yeah, just to know that the eyes, the the, the root material there came from, from skin, yeah. from skin cells is very interesting.
1: Fascinating. So let's move on to the last real cephalopod we we're going to discuss here, um, and we're really Talking about the Faberge egg of the cephalopod world, <laughs> the uh, the cuttlefish. Yes. Now, uh, back in the uh, stuff in the science lab days, uh, right at the end, we did an, an episode on cuttlefish, and there's a lot of great information that's cuttlefish specific in there. But we're we're going to talk about it a little bit here, especially as it as it deals with intelligence, because the cuttlefish has one of the largest brain to body size ra- ratios of all invertebrates, and uh, and you see a lot of the. The the, the really impressive attributes um, um, involving intelligence and nervous systems Mm -hmm. in cephalopods are are really highlighted in the cuttlefish's design because you have uh, just rapid shifts in color. Uh, um, They're fairly social creatures. I mean, they're not social in in the in a way that's really comparable to say uh, you know dogs or or primates mm-hmm. but there are there are some very interesting social interactions here there's a certain amount of communication that takes place through uh the use of their uh colorful skin uh which uh, uh contains these uh, chromatophores uh that uh, can lighten and darken and they can shift uh I mean, just really rapidly um, from uh, different colors and intensities.
0: So red, black, and yellow are some of the uh, chromatophores yeah. that emerge. But in addition to that, there's this luminosity, so it gives it a greater range. And in fact, with, with other sea creatures like fish, they have four rods in their eyes, and they're able to perceive mm-hmm. more color than, say, our 3 rodted eyes. So it, when, when we see these incredible displays of color uh, from cephalopods, keep in mind that we're not even really seeing the full spectrum
1: right these creatures the uh, cuttlefish are just remarkable to uh, to see at, at an aquarium now generally you have to wait for uh, a large pack of people with cell phone cameras to get out of the way because you go to an aquarium you want to take a really bad direct flash cell phone photo of everything there <laughs> apparently that's the, apparently the big thing these days but if you can actually get the uh, the tank to yourself for a little bit, they're just really fascinating to watch. The color shifts; they, they kind of hover, for mm-hmm. starters. They're not uh, they're a lot they're a lot more interesting to look at in an aquarium because octopi, uh, you know, you may catch them when they're active, but they're you know, they're going to be sticking to the corners and mm-hmm. and and all that. Where the 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 cuttlefish is going to hover out there in the in, in the middle, and he's going to kind of uh, he or she's going to kind of sh- hover around. It has this little hover skirt that goes around the edges. Um and then they're going to slowly change colors, and then there may be a drastic change in color.
0: Yeah, and all of that is uh, predicated on the fact that they are controlled by nerves. Yeah. So it gives them that instantaneous color change. And when we talk about those chromatophores, we are talking about tens of thousands of organs here yeah. that are controlling that. And so think of it um similar to the way that pixels form on images of a computer screen. That's what you're seeing on their skin, basically. Um, you talked about their communication and, and their, their, um, level of, of socialness. And I wanted to bring up Jean Bull of Penn Miller'sville University. She's a scientist. And she says that they, uh, the males have all kinds of really impressive displays. And that, in fact, the cuttlefish can simultaneously adjust one side of, uh, his body to show a dominant display toward other males. Mm-hmm while um, the other side of his body shows a calm display towards a potential mate. Wow. It's a really aggressive pattern on the left where, where a foe is, and on the right, I, I don't know exactly what it would be, let's say a little heart design. Uh, it's Not really heart, no, but you know what I'm saying. It's kind of
1: like he's flexing the muscle and looking all bad on one side, but then he's, he's kind of smiling and winking out of the other eye.
0: And this is interesting. Uh, during mating, they display oh, yes. a zebra pattern, Ooh. which I just automatically always associate with wrestlers. Really, and bodybuilders because yeah. they're always wearing the, the the pants with the zebra patterns. You do pattern see some it.
1: zebra patterns uh, with, popular with some of the uh, the boys, uh, but um, but uh, this is intricate, right? Yeah. I mean,
0: this is a this is a whole language that, that we don't necessarily have access to that we can witness, and it can tell us something about ourselves to some degree, but we can't even fully imagine because another... we don't have the the language ourselves to yeah. express
1: it. There's another interesting thing that goes on with cephalopod. Uh, I mean, not cephalopod. Uh, cuttlefish mating—that uh, is really fascinating—and that's where you'll have these dominant cuttlefish, like these big, brutish-looking cuttlefish that are that are not the cute little guys that you didn't see at the aquarium, but big, rugged, old man Cthulhu-looking cuttlefish. And they're they're really bossy, and they're getting the big fights over the, the females because you know they like they really want to mate with the with the females. But then you'll have the smaller males that will that will disguise themselves as females, like they'll uh, you know, like a lot of cephalopods. The cuttlefish has a has, has a a lot of control over just how- sort of like drag it's,
0: queens, I'm thinking bosom bodies. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. That,
1: it's that kind of thing. Like, they know that they don't stand a chance walking in there as a small male, because mm-hmm. they're just gonna get beat up and tore up, and then the, the big male's gonna mate. So, they disguise themselves as a female, and then they, they move in close, and then the big beefy uh, cuttlefish, he looks at this and he's like, oh yeah, it looks like I got two dates for the night. Uh, you know, that's a total win for me. Meanwhile, the disguised smaller male actually gets in there and mates with the female.
0: Okay, so you really just did, um, talk about the premise for the sitcom, Booze and Bodies. Really? And not, that was, the, not, that was not not the, the premise. Well, actually, the premise was really that they, the rent was much lower if they were at this oh, all okay. women's boarding. But they used that to their advantage to, to advance, uh, their agendas with the ladies. Oh, there you there. go. Yeah.
1: The other really awesome thing about, uh, Cuttlefish, um, that, uh, that, that I may have mentioned on here before, is their use of um, pseudomorphs, which means false form. And uh, what they'll do is a, a pseudomorph is a bubble of ink surrounded by mucus, and it occupies the same amount of space as the cuttlefish. It's a decoy. So uh, what will happen if they're uh, in a situation where they're they're threatened? They will shift their color suddenly to where they're really dark, like the surrounding. Mm-hmm. Then they'll shoot out the pseudomorph, and then they'll they'll turbo out of there with their jets.
0: Yeah, their jet propulsion, by the yeah. way, is amazing.
1: So they create a copy of themselves, more or less. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not its not like an artistic expression. <laughs> but they'll, uh, they'll create, you know, appropriate mass replica of themselves that is just ink inside of mucus. And then they'll jet away really fast at the same time. So it's like sleight of hand where they leave the decoy where they just were and they're already jetting away. And then when something tries to eat the pseudomorph, of course, then they just get a whole bunch of ink, uh, which also contains uh, dopamine and L-DOPA, uh, a precursor to dopamine, uh, which may temporarily paralyze the sense of smell uh, for the uh, creature that, okay. that zoomed in. So it's just a fantastic uh, and deceptive means of self-defense.
0: In terms of their intelligence, again, Gene Bull, uh, the scientist, devised a couple of experiments to study this rather than just sort of the stimulus response mm-hmm. ex- experiments that you see sometimes. Um, again, in the book, and Wendy Williams describes this experiment as a tank in the shape of a clock Uh, With escape routes, two of them, only one open at a time, and that's at the 3 o'clock position and the 6 o'clock. Okay. Excuse me, the 9 o'clock, 3 and 9, 3 and 9. And so the cuttlefish enter through the 6 o'clock position, and then immediately they see a queue at the 12 o'clock position. So the queue is either algae or brick. Mm -hmm. Algae would indicate, like, hey, on the right, that's your escape hatch. Um, the brick would indicate on the left, that's your, That's going to be your escape hatch. So they actually get to learn these cues that, hmm. hey, okay, when I see the algae, I know to take a 90-degree turn to the right. And it's fascinating because she said this was um, this process of if-then propositions that we learn and that in humans it's represented as the first steps in de- development of logic and our ability to use reason and decision-making.
1: Huh, fascinating. All right, so one final squid to mention, and this one is is, is even uh, even more dubious than uh, the idea of, uh, of ancient krakens creating uh, uh, art out of dead, fried dolphins, and that is the idea <laughs> of the mega squid, which um, was featured on the TV show Futu- uh, Future Is Wild, uh, and uh, which you can I believe occasionally catch on uh, various Discovery Channel, uh, Discovery Channel or Animal Planet. Uh, just check local listings; it pops up from time to time, but. Uh, that it was a you know spe- speculative episode where they're talking about the future. What if humans weren't around? What might evolve and fill that void? What would become the dominant species? And so they had some some CGI stuff going on and some some fabulous ideas of what might happen. And one of the the cooler things that they introduced was a mega squid, which was a twelve foot tall, eight ton terrestrial air breathing squid. That roams the northern forests of a humanless earth, and it, it, it's a pretty cool design. I mean, it's, on one level, it's kind of ridiculous because well,
0: with the whole air pressure yeah. issue, first of all, right, yeah. going from 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 the the uh, the pressure in the ocean to land.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy to to think. But th- their their argument was that it, it's not just a situation of a, a giant squid crawling out or a giant octopus crawling out of the water. It would have been like a slow evolutionary process. Okay,
0: so 500 million years later.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it had legs, which they they made the case that uh, each of these legs, which look kind of like an elephant leg, uh, contain a network of circular and vertical muscles uh, that form uh, these limbs and make them strong enough to carry this 8-ton weight. Uh, They have um, a vocal sac that vibrates to produce sound. That was their other okay. uh, thing that they came up with for the mega squid, and uh, they also have uh, two large tentacles that they grab things out of the woods to eat. So it's kind of neat. It's it's uh, like I say don't don't make any any hard Vegas bets on uh, on mega squids uh, taking over the planet planet anytime in the uh, distant future, even. But uh, but it's a cool idea, and it's it's interesting to think of cephalopods not merely as this interesting creature confined to the ocean, but one of Earth's more remarkable creatures that maybe could, uh, become the primary player in a future Earth.
0: Well, in that context, it is really interesting to, to imagine what the brain would look like once it became terrestrial, um, because as Bull had said before is that, uh, one of the things that's really exciting to her about cephalod, cephalod intelligence is that, uh, we know that their relatives are clams and snails.
1: Yeah. Not, not, not much so going on smart there.
0: there. Yeah. Um, so whatever happened to the cephalo- cephalopods was different. And she wants to get to the bottom of why they're using their intelligence, uh, why, why their brains developed in the way they, that they did. And um, what does that tell us about ourselves?
1: Yeah, as we discussed in the gigantism episode, as animals get bigger, they have fewer predators. And, and certainly the mega squid is not going to have the, the, the survival challenge that uh, that smaller cephalopods have evolved to deal with. So you can imagine this thing might be pretty stupid.
0: Possibly. Yeah.
1: I mean, intellectually, it just might. there might not be a lot going on, because all it has to do is wander around the forest and eat other CGI creatures. So a little Jar Jar here, you know. Nice. All right, as we close out here uh, our episode on the Mind of the Kraken, I thought it would be fun uh, to bring in uh, Jonathan Strickland, co-host of the Tech Stuff podcast, to read The Kraken by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson.
0: Yes, and this poem is based on an old Norse legend of gigantic sea monsters who prey on ships and drag them underneath the ocean. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far,
1: far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep the Kraken sleepeth faintest sunlights flee about
0: his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered an enormous polypi winnow with giant arms, the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages and will lie, battening upon huge sea-worms in his sleep until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then, once by man, and angels to be seen in roaring he shall rise and on the surface die
1: so there you go fantastic reading from uh, Jonathan Strickland Uh, if you if you haven't checked out tech stuff uh, be sure to check that out it's a great uh, podcast Uh, Chris and Jonathan tackle all sorts of gadgety techy Nerdy uh, topics in uh, in awesome form,
0: and they are wonderful punsters, by yeah. the way,
1: too. So, if you have uh, something you would like to share with us about the mind of the kraken, uh, about the possibility uh, that this kraken theory is, is is true, or maybe you have thoughts about the mega squid, maybe you have uh, worked with the uh, cephalopods at one point or another and have some some uh, in some your cubicle tippets. next to you, yeah, or yeah. you know, or if you have some octopi escape stories, let us know about those. If you have ever um, Snuck away from work and left a bunch of squid ink inside of uh, a thin layer of mucus in your place as a decoy. We would love to hear about that as well. <laughs> you can find us on uh, Facebook, where we are stuffed to blow your mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind.
0: And you can drop us a line at Blow the Mind at Discovery.com.